If you open your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today, um, and uh, we will uh, we'll jump in and get to work. Ephesians chapter 6, as you're making your way there, I'll tell you a story, you know, there's a guy uh, who uh, has his wife go out to the mall to go shopping. That's a horror story if you're a man here, right? That makes it worse if you have to go with her. Um, right? I told my wife when we were dating, I'm like, I do not shop. Don't ask me. Don't do some clever, you know, ploy like if you love me, you'll go shopping with me. You will be sadly disappointed. I don't shop. I don't even shop for my own clothes. My wife goes and buys clothes and brings them home, and I try them on at home. I'm really not kidding. I, I'm, okay, maybe just a little bit. I hate shopping. Anyway, I digress. So a guy's wife goes shopping. She buys a new dress. She brings it home. And, uh, and so there she is, she's all, she's so excited about her new dress, and, uh, and you're the guy, what, what's the first thing you do? You check the price tag, thank you, okay, so I'm not alone, sweetheart, okay, so you check the price tag, well, her husband looks at the price tag, he's like, are you kidding me? He calls her, he's like, we cannot afford this dress. She says, honey, it's so, I love this dress, it's amazing, I, I just, I love it. He goes, I get it. It can be the most beautiful dress you've ever worn. Baby, we can't afford this dress. She goes, the devil made me do it. He says, honey, now I'm not going to buy that. You know, where, why didn't you say, get behind me, Satan? She says, I did. And he said, it looks good from back here too. <laughs> We're going to talk about spiritual warfare today. You know, we laugh about spiritual warfare, but it's actually, it's really serious business, isn't it? We have an enemy who, who hates us. And I don't know if you've lived in uh, Southern California for very long, but in the, in the 90s, in, in, in 1995, in September, uh, there was a family, they took a wrong turn, and they ended up going down uh, what was known to locals as a street called uh, the Avenue of the Assassins. It was the home of the Assassins Street Gang, and they, as soon as they turned down that street, um, this gang opened fire on them, thinking they were enemies. And uh, automatic weapons, the whole bit, killed the three-year-old daughter, ki- uh, you know, wounded dad and, and several of the other kids, um, and it was tragic. And you know, it, it, all because of a wrong turn. And the Bible says that mankind has taken a wrong turn. Uh, Isaiah the prophet, he said, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And, uh, and so, just like the Kuhn family who turned this, made this wrong turn and, and found themselves in the middle of a war, we, mankind, we have taken a wrong turn. We are in the middle of a war. And, and it all traces back. You go back to, to the book of Genesis there, and you see when the, in the, when the war started. Uh, t- talking to a friend of mine about this just recently, just about the attack of the enemy and all. And, and there in the garden, God created mankind, loved mankind. Uh, if you read in 1 John, it tells us that God is love. Uh, and, and so when God created man, he created him in his image. And that means a bunch of different things. But one of the things that it means is that when God creates you in his image, he creates you with a capacity to choose. He gives you a sovereign will, just as he himself has a sovereign will. God gives you that sovereign will so that you can have the capacity to choose. Because, see, God wants to love you, and he wants to be in a loving relationship with you. But if you don't have a choice in the matter, then it's not real. 
It's, it's, it's not a genuine thing. It, it would be, you know, if, as if you, you know, made some sort of, a, a, of an advanced high-tech robot that was going to, you know, let's say you had the technology to, to create, you know, a, a human being uh, as your spouse, and they didn't have any capacity to choose, but they rather just pr- were programmed to love you, that relationship would not be genuine, would it? Any expressions of love that you might receive from that thing that you created, it would not be genuine, would it? Absolutely not. It would not be. And you would, it would ring hollow any, any words that this, that this created being might utter to you, any, any affirm, you know, affection that might be offered to you. It would be shallow and it would be meaningless ultimately because, because they've just been doing what they're programmed to do. And so what makes our love relationship with the Lord so wonderful is that God has given to us the capacity to choose. He says, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life, he begs us. And so we have been created in the image of God, but the problem is is that Satan rebelled against God. And so in rebelling against God, Satan shows up on the scene and he tempted Adam and Eve and he tempted them to sin as well. And, and so being tempted to sin, well, the result is that we have been enslaved to sin. This is what the Bible says. And Paul, talking to Timothy, uh, says that man, mankind, you know, the, the, the desperate need of mankind is that we should come to our senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And that's very descriptive and, and, and very precisely what the problem is. Mankind has been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. And so this is what Paul's talking about here when, when now he's talking about spiritual warfare. There is a war. People are being taken captive. And we need to be aware of it. So Ephesians 6, verse 10, Paul says this, Finally, my brethren, uh, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And so Paul here, he's writing to the Ephesians and he's giving them this exhortation of how they they are to walk in Christ. You know, the whole book being divided into the wealth that we have in Christ and then our walk in Christ. Paul telling the Ephesians, listen, God's blessed you abundantly, and, and there's a responsibility that comes along with that to, uh, to, to followers of the Lord, to, to those that are those children of God. You know, you have wealth in Christ, sure. But there's a walk. There's something that we have to be actively engaged in doing. We have to put feet on our faith. And so we've been looking at this, and, and as we've been going through the second half of the book of Ephesians, he's exhorted us, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, walk in submission. And we've looked at all of these things, and today now we look at this, walk in power. Now, I draw your attention to verse 12. We just read it. This is our key point of the study today. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. See, here's the deal. As soon as Paul makes this transition in Ephesians chapter 4 from our wealth in Christ to our walk in Christ, the focus shifts from what Jesus has done for you to what he desires to do through you. And if you'll notice, and if you've been taking note as we've been going through this, it all revolves around relationships. 
Everything revolves around relationships. Here are his exhortations when he talks about our walk in Christ. You know, the exhortation that we're to be gentle with one another, he talks about in Ephesians 4. That we're to be patient with one another. That we're to be unified with one another. Uh, that we are to use our spiritual gifts to bless one another. He talks about how we're to submit to one another. Wives are to submit to the husbands. Husbands are to submit to Christ. Children are to submit to their parents. Uh, slaves are to submit to their masters. We've been looking at all of these things. And, and so it all, again, all revolving around relationship. But there's just one problem with that. And here's the problem. The problem is that we're at war. And something happens when we're at war. Why are we at war? Sin has entered into the world. Mankind has rebelled. Mankind has been taken captive by the enemy to do his, to do his bidding. And there is a war for your soul. And what happens often in war is that you have, well, what do you get in war, warfare? You get collateral damage. What do you get in warfare? Well, one of the things that you have in warfare is friendly fire. And, and, and friendly fire is very descriptive here because, well, what happens, what is friendly fire by definition? It's when you confuse friendly forces with enemy forces. That's, that's, a, that's a, a very good definition of friendly fire, and this happens in war. And, and inevitably, what's going to happen is that you're going to have inevitable conflicts that come up in, our, in relationships where, man, in that conflict, there's the temptation for you to confuse the friendly forces with the enemy forces. There's the temptation that comes up when, man, we, we go, we're in a situation. I'll tell couples this in marriage counseling all the times. I talk about this thing that there's 200% truth. There's 100% truth of what's happening right now here in the physical. The he said this, the she did that. The, there's, the, there's the reality of the physical, but there also, and you have to understand, there's spiritual forces at work. There's an enemy that wants you to shoot each other. There's an enemy that wants you to, to focus all of your anger and all of your fighting and all of your energy on the physical battle that you can see because we're physical beings. But all the while, there is a spiritual reality that sometimes we are clueless to and it is slowly eroding us and taking us away and taking us out. Clueless to this warfare that can, that can transpire. This is why Paul says, man, you, you need to put on the whole armor of God. Because you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You think it's about flesh and blood. You think it's about this person. You think it's about this situation. You think it's about this thing or that thing or whatever it is. But it's spiritual. There's a spiritual war that's taking place. See, the Bible talks about non-Christians as being taken captive. This is what happens in war. The enemy comes in. He defeats. He conquers. And then he enslaves everyone that he conquers. And, and our world has been conquered by Satan and by demons. They've been taken captives in the war. And, uh, and so the, the issue here is that our war isn't against the captives, it's against the captors. Our war isn't against the captives, it's against Satan and his demons. And we have to keep this in mind. This is why Jesus declared at the beginning of his ministry that he came to set the captives free. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. So again, the war isn't against people. It's against Satan. It's against his demons. 
it's against the one who has taken us captive to do as well. Now, Jesus talked about this in Mark's gospel. Jesus said this. He said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now, here's the idea behind that scripture, what Jesus is saying. He basically is saying Satan is the strong man who's stolen some, who has stolen something valuable. You know the valuable thing that he stole? You. He stole you from the Father. He stole me from the Father. He's taken us captive to do his will. That's the idea. And Jesus basically is saying that, hey, the implication is that Jesus Christ is the stronger man who goes in and ties up, who binds the strong man, Satan, to get back what is his, right? That's the picture there. Now, I've got a great illustration for you uh, in this regard. A friend of mine here at the church, Bob. Now, Bob uh, races motorcycles, and uh, he's, uh, he, he's got a trailer, puts all of his gear in it, and, uh, and there it is. It's out in front of his house. Someone steals it. So uh, they don't know who they're messing with, apparently. So what's Bob do? Well, Bob starts going through the internet, looking at all the different places where, you know, that people would sell these items, and because he races professionally, there's certain items in that trailer that, that they wouldn't have known, or rather that wouldn't normally be sold, and so there are huge red flags when you see these show up on, you know, Craigslist or whatever, like, oh, there's my stuff right there. So Bob goes hunting, and only Bob, he finds the guys, right? And so when he finds the guys, he contacts the sheriff's department, shows them all the evidence, and, and before you know it, before long... They, the sheriff has Bob in the sheriff's helicopter. They're flying out to the property. Only Bob. You got to know him. So there, there he is. He's got, he's got his posse together, Riverside County Sheriff's Department. And let's go get these guys. Uh, and, and, and so he's got all the stuff. They go, they fly. That's the guy. They're like, oh, we know these guys. The, and they're telling them all this stuff. And um, crazy. Whole backstory, whole nother story. First time they went flying out there actually violated presidential airspace because Obama was in uh, Palm Springs uh, visiting and they violated airspace. So they got escorted by an F-15 back to, to the French Valley Airport. Uh, Bob was not flying the plane. He's not a pilot, so that's not his fault. But uh, that's a whole nother story. Anyway, so, so the issue is, you know, here, what's Bob do? Well, he's using the power that's available to him to identify the real enemy. And then he relied upon the authorities, to get back what was his. See, too often, here's what happens, is that we go after the wrong enemy, number one, and number two, we do it in our own strength. We go after the wrong enemy and we do it in our own strength. See, this is why Paul says in verse 10, if you look in there, that we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. A couple of words there, you might want to circle power and might. First one is that word might, and, and the word might, it, it is the inherent power or force. I'll describe it to you this way. We have what's known as uh, aircraft carrier diplomacy, battle group diplomacy, where if the, we got a, a company that, or a country that's acting out and, uh, and we want to get them in line, one of the things that we'll do is we'll send an aircraft carrier battle group and park them off their country. 
And so, and the person knows when that aircraft carrier battle group comes that you've got the aircraft carrier, you've got all the F-15 fighters on there, you've got all the bombs, all the missiles, all the nuclear deterrent, you've got nuclear-powered submarines with nuclear missiles, all part of that contingent, you've got destroyers, you've got missile cruisers, you've got, you've got the whole bit, and they're all over there. And what the president is saying in that situation is, you don't know who you're messing with. And so they come park off your coast and you go, oh, I was just kidding. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that, right? Now that only works if what? You got the firepower, the, 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 the fortitude and the, the wherewithal to back it up with, our, with, with action, right? I mean, if, if you don't, if they know that you're never going to do anything and that your bark is worse than your bite, they're going to you know, stop it or I'll say stop it again. They're like, oh, wow, you know, it doesn't mean anything to them. The whole parenting class, we do a whole Sunday on that right there. Just that one issue. A lot of your kids, they know you don't mean it. But so that's might. Power is the exercise of that might. Power is when you start launching F-15 fighters with bombs and, and missiles and, and so on. And some of you are like, I'm pacifist. I don't like that example. I'm just, it's, a, it's an example. So let me use Bob as an example here, taking that picture. You know, when the thief stole his trailer, the might that was available to Bob was the internet in the Riverside Sheriff's Office, and the power that he exercised was actually calling them, letting them do it. You know, he didn't jump in his truck and go driving there, although you know, probably would have been his inclination. He could have put a dent in it, I'm sure. But, you know, the real power was to be able to rely and utilize properly that that was available to him. Here's the point. I'll put it on the screen for you so you don't miss it. God has vast resources of might that can be realized as power in our life. It's worth writing down. God has vast reservoirs of might that can be realized as power in our life. See, but God's might doesn't work in me if I sit passively. His might works in me only as I rely on it and step out to do the work. So how do we do that? Glad you asked. Verse 11, Paul tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, there's two words there that I want you to circle in verse 11. The wiles of the devil is one and the armor of God is the other. Uh, Wiles of the devil. Let's talk about that first. If you circled the word wiles nearby, here's what you could write. You could write deceitful trickery or you could write used car salesman. Either one. I, they, they go, they're interchangeable. If you are a used car salesman, I'm just kidding, okay? Um, no, it, it's deceitful trickery. See, the enemy employs tactics and tricks, doesn't he? He is sneaky, and his whole objective is to deceive us. And again, this all goes back to the garden. If you think to the garden, basically what happened there was that, you know... The enemy does a number on Eve to deceitfully trick her to get her away from obeying the Lord. And and so the, the idea is that all sin is rooted in unbelief. And so what the enemy seeks to do is get you to a place where you doubt, where you disbelieve. And, and Jesus was talking about this in John's gospel, and you know, he's talking to the Pharisees who are opposing him, and he says this in John 8, 44, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Now he goes to talk about what is Satan all about. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And the fact is, is that Satan lies to us all the time. Lies to us all the time. 
He lies to us about God. He lies to us about our sin. He lies to us about people. He lies to us about our hope in Jesus Christ. He lies, he lies, he lies, he lies. He lies to us about our spouse. Oh, they said that, they meant this. He, you know, and, and it's just constant. He's sowing these seeds of lies. So what does Paul say? Well, verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to go through a particular list of the wiles of the devil, okay? And he's going to talk about specific armor that we have in Christ to combat all of his tactics, okay? So the enemy's got different things that he does, and so you just need to, to, to know how to combat each particular one. Here's an example. I, I joked about the used car salesman, but, you know, my wife and I, we go down to the, we're looking for an RV during a, a time of insanity in our lives, and so we're, you know, going around to the different car dealerships, and, um, and you know, the guys will come up, and they just, they're lying through their teeth, you know? And, um, and so... Uh, I can make a joke, I won't, because you might be an RV salesman. But at any rate, so they say something, and, and um, I have fun with it. Anyway, so one of the tactics that you have to, to understand is that you expect that people are going to lie to you, so you ask them a ton of questions. Now, my wife, she understands this, and she's got the patience to do it. I'm like, I'm not even going to bother asking him the question, because he's going to lie. But my wife says, yeah, okay, but if you ask enough salesmen the same question, you'll, you'll discover what the truth is. I'm like, I got it, you're right. Well, you ask the questions because I don't feel like it. I don't want to listen to the guy because he's, you know. But there are tactics that the enemy employs. And if we're aware of those tactics, and if we're aware of how to combat those tactics, what it's going to do, and this is what I want you to hear because this is, this is the, the whole get of the message. If you'll be aware of the tactics... And if you'll be ready for them, so that you can counter them with the armor, army which God has, the armor which God has provided for you, then you'll be in a place where you can, you can better combat that and you can have victory in your Christian walk, right? All right, so here's, here's what Paul says. He starts in verse 14, uh, and he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now, what Paul is going to do is he's going to go through this list of armor, and no doubt we know who the, the, the inspiration was for him to use this metaphor as he goes through, because Paul is chained to a Roman guard, and, and he's chained 24-7 right now. He's in prison. So Paul has this object lesson in front of him. He's looking at the Roman guard and all the armor that he has, and so he's using that to be able to metaphorically talk about the armor that we have. The armor that we have in Christ. And so he says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. So first one there is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. This is, this is a, a piece of armor that you have. Now, the Roman belt played a crucial role. Uh, it, it held the scabbard, which held the sword. Um, it uh, had on affixed to the belt strips of leather that, that covered your groin. So important, you know, piece right there. Uh, protect you there. And, and it also secured all your other armor. And so the belt was super, super important. And, and what, what Paul is saying here is, is the first piece of armor for you is to, to arm yourself with the belt of truth. And, and here's the point of application. Some of you absolutely are governed by lies that Satan tells. They control your whole life. And they have a deep foothold in your life. 
And, and so, you know, and the thing about a lie is it doesn't even need to be true to work a number on you. You can just believe a lie, even though, you know, there's, there's no proof in it. And just believing the lie can train wreck your life. And so what happens is, is that, you know, Satan lies to you all the time. He tells you, God doesn't love you. God's never going to forgive you. God can't forgive you for that. God's not going to provide for you. You can't trust in God. He's not real. Uh, that person's po- apology isn't real. They didn't really mean it. Uh, and, you know, you're nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. Uh, nobody could ever love you. You're unlovable. All of these things are lies from the enemy. Your spouse doesn't love you. You know, fill in the blank. And, and some of you, you know, as, as I'm saying that, I just would ask right now that you listen to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you and just highlights with maybe, you know, spiritual highlighter, those lies that you've believed from the enemy. And I just ask you, what lies have you believed that the enemy tells you all the time? You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. You have no talent. You're, you're, you know, nobody loves you. Whatever it is. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that the truth will set you free. Jesus said that, John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, think about Jesus in the wilderness. The enemy combats him there, tells him all sorts of lies, tempts him with all sorts of lies, and what did Jesus refute it with? He refuted it with the truth, right? This is how he refuted it. And, and so this is, by the way, why we stress so importantly to you that you get plugged into a growth group. This is why my strong encouragement to you is, look, make, it, make attending church every Sunday without fail a priority in your schedule. I don't do that so we fill up the chairs here. I mean, that would be nice, but that's not the reason why I implore you to go to church. I implore you to go to church because you need to be equipped with the truth of God's word. This is why when, you know, we're talking to anybody in the church who's, you know, we have, who we have opportunity to disciple, which is, which is um, you know, not for some and not for others. Discipleship is for everybody. Our great goal for you, I'll just let you know, our hope for you, our goal for you, our plan for you, everything that we possibly will do to, to reach you is to, is to disciple you in your relationship with the Lord. We want to do that in a large corporate setting. We want to get you in a smaller growth group setting to do that. We want to get you in a one-on-one setting to do that because we know that if we equip you with God's word, that is this belt of truth which is going to, which is going to protect you and equip you and be foundational to everything else that will happen in your life. Sometimes I'll be counseling with a couple, maybe marriage counseling, and I'll be encouraging them, look, you're not in a growth group. You need to get plugged into a growth group. And sometimes... The objection is, well, my problem's in my marriage. What, what, what help is a growth group going to do in my marriage? Like, it's the truth of God's word. You're in trouble in your marriage because you've believed lies. And, and so the cure for your marriage, the cure for this fractured relationship, the cure for you know, your temptation and struggle in this area of sin or that area of sin or whatever it is, your cure is going to be found in the word of God. You need to, to have this armor, the belt of truth, firmly fastened in your life. And so, so critically important. Again, you've got to decide, are you going to walk in darkness? Are you going to walk believing lies? Or are you going to walk obeying the truth? Are you going to walk believing the truth, trusting the truth? Well, you can't walk in the truth if you're not exposed to the truth. Right? I mean... That's, that's pretty basic, fundamental, like, duh. 
But it needs to be said again. You can't walk in the truth if you're not exposed to the truth. So, you know, just a takeaway, one of these things I'd ask you to just pray about. How exposed are you to the truth? Are you in the Word on a regular basis? Do you read your Bible during the day? Every day? Are you in church regularly? in your growth group? Are you in a discipleship relationship with someone else? See, because the, the enemy will lie to you. It's, it, and it's not a question of if, it's a matter of when, and it's a matter of how much. You ever been lied to? Yeah, all the time. So you, gotta, you, you, need to be, you need to be armed with the belt of truth. Continuing, verse 14, he says, Stand therefore girded with your, your waist with the truth, having put on, here's the next one, the breastplate of righteousness. <clears throat> the breastplate of righteousness. Now here's the idea. The idea is that another one of Satan's tactics to trip you up is to tempt you. He, he, he wants to get you to a place where you're going to sin against the Lord. And so he will tempt you. He'll bring temptation into your life. Again, Jesus in the wilderness was tempted by Satan, right? Was he not? Absolutely he was. You ever been tempted? Absolutely you have been. If you're breathing and you have a pulse, you've been tempted. Now, so here's the thing. Now, Satan, he's crafty. He works both sides of the fence. He tempts you to sin on this side. And then when you sin, he jumps over to the condemnation side of the fence and he condemns you. And, and he's got you both ways because what happens is you, you, you get tempted. And a lot of people, they mistakenly, they think, well, you know what? I'm tempted. Oh, wow, I've sinned. And I'm, well, I might as well just give into it now, which is totally a lie from Satan. Is it sin to be tempted? Well, no, Jesus was tempted in, in the wilderness. So it's not a sin to be tempted, but Satan will tempt you and he'll lie to you and say, well, just by virtue of the fact that you were tempted, you might as well just give into it because you've sinned already. So just follow through. Might as well get the pleasure out of it. It's a lie. So, so there's that. And God will give you the strength, this idea of the, belt, the, the breastplate of righteousness. God, through Christ Jesus, he will give you the strength to obey the Lord and not to give in to that temptation. That strength is available to you. So, so you have that, that might and that power available to you. So, so it's available to you to not sin at all. But here, listen, it's also available to you if you do yield to the sin, if you do fall to the sin, if, if you do commit the sin. See, because the, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've looked at that before. That word confess, it means to agree with God. Starting out, you agree with God that it is sin. You don't make excuses for it. You don't put some convenient label on it. You don't say, well, you know, I'm just genetically predisposed to struggle with this, and it's so it's, it, this is my medical diagnosis. Just call it sin. It's sin. And so you agree with sin in the sense, with God in the sense that you call sin what he calls sin. Secondly, <clears throat> you confess your sins, you agree with God, in the idea that, God, I admit I did it. Now, a lot of people, they won't even bring themselves to do that. Why? Well, because they think that if I admit my guilt, that I'm going to be judged. And here's what you need to know. God, in the person of the work of Jesus Christ, has judged your sin. On the cross, Jesus died on the cross for your sin in your place. Amen. 
So, so the thing is, is the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness, not only is it that you're living a righteous life, that you're trying your level best by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God, to honor God, to not sin against God, but also the breastplate of righteousness is that when you sin, you confess it. You run to God. You say, God, I have sinned. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. And see, a lot of us, we get to that place where it's like, you know, Peter asked Jesus, hey, you know, how often should I forgive my brother if he forgins, for, if sins against me? You know, up to seven times because he's really starting to tick me off. You know, kind of thing. The last part is my commentary to the Lord. So, <clears throat> and what does God say to him? Not seven times, Peter. Seventy times seven. That's the heart of God. That's not a green light for you to sin in your life. He wants you to resist sin. Paul talked and he says, you haven't resisted yet to the point of bloodshed. You've got to really fight against sin. This is the heart of God. You need, to, you need to put on that breastplate of righteousness to do your level best to walk obediently to the Lord. But know that when you sin, you have in God the Father, a Father who loves you, and in God the Son, a God who has paid the penalty for your sin. So we can wear this breastplate of righteousness. Satan gets you to the place where you sin. He's like, just give up. You've done it now. So just walk away from the Lord. No, that's a tactic of the enemy. He wants you to give up. Breastplate of righteousness, baby. You've got to put that thing on. He continues. He says in verse 15, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You put on the, the shoes of peace. That's the idea. See, one of Satan's tactics is to attack our relationships. And, and so, you know, again, what we need to understand is that the gospel is first and foremost, it's a message of peace, right? Jesus was asked, hey, what's the most important commandment in the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He said, the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commandments hinge all the law and the prophets. The idea is that the entirety of God's word is summed up, love God, love others. Well, how do we do that practically? How do I put feet on that as we pray? God, help us not to be hearers of the word. Help us to be doers of your word. Help us to put feet on our faith. How do you do that? Well, Jesus said that you are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. He said that, you know, if somebody slaps your right cheek, you're to offer to them your left cheek. Listen, Jesus said, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the people who heard Jesus telling this, they're like, when did we see you naked? And, and when did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? Jesus said, I tell you, in so much as you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. See, the, the issue here for us is that if we truly seek to put feet on our faith, it's going to show up in our relationships. And so you need to understand, Satan, he's going to attack you. Satan is going to basically try and get you to, you know, take out your brother, take out your sister, take out your friend, take out your wife, and not in a good way. And, you know, he's like, they're the enemy. And you have to go, no, you're the enemy. So, so what Jesus tells me to do is I'm, I'm, I'm to love those who persecute me and pray for those who spitefully use me. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And what did the prophets do as they were persecuted? They gave their lives to minister to these people. The hope would be that that they would repent, that they would hear the message, that they would convert because they understood, they knew they're not the enemy. They've been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. And so we need to remember that. I need to be able to have the shoes of peace. Paul continues, verse 16, he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You need the shield of faith. And he talks about these fiery darts. Now, what, what does a fiery dart do? Starts a fire, okay? Now, we have an object lesson for the past couple of weeks, don't we? There's the fires raging in, in, in San Diego and all around. And, and can I just tell you, the, do you know the quickest and most effective way to fight a fire? It's to prevent a fire, right? It's to prevent a fire, or at the very least, to extinguish that thing when it first gets started. I don't know if you saw the video. Somebody has video of one of the fires that now has grown into a you know, multi-thousand acre fire and has uh, destroyed homes and, and so on. That very fire started on a golf course, and when you look at it, it was a small spot. I mean, you, you would think that you could put that sucker out with a hose, and you probably could if you're in the right spot. Again, you know, having been a firefighter for 10 years, I just, I remember one incident, we were listening on the radio, and the guy pulls up, and the radio traffic, he gets dispatched to a fire, he's like, oh yeah, it's a small spot, I'm going to catch it. Comes back about 15 seconds later, he's like, ah, yeah, it's starting to take off, it's about a quarter acre, better send me another engine. Like 30 seconds later, "Uh, I'm going to need a couple more engines, this thing's, it's growing, It's it's about a mile then it's, you know, hey, you better send me a strike team. Then it's, hey, I'm, I'm going to need, you know, I'm going to need more resources out here. Pretty soon the guy just gets on the radio. He's like, it's gone. That's literally what he said. He's like, it's gone. Turned into a multi-day fire. See, the thing is, is Satan shoots these fiery darts in our lives. And the, and the issue here is that what Paul is saying is, you got to see it. It's a tactic of the enemy. And so what happens is, well, he, you know, he, he, Shoots a fiery dart, talking, reminding you about your past failures, or reminding you, you know, giving some regret, a hurt or an offense, or you know, just that thing. It just comes at you. You, you ever been shot? And you know, you feel it. You, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. Revelation 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and so he takes these shots, and and you know, we see this played out in a bunch of different ways. One one of our dear sisters here at the church, you know, I recently was teaching on abortion. And, you know, here, here's the thing. Abortion is, is a tragic lie from the enemy because it's murder. All life is sacred to God. It's precious. The Bible makes it very clear that God places a child in the mother's womb, knows that child. It's not some random collection of cells. But see, Satan's a liar. And so he deceives people. And, and here's the overwhelming statistics about, about abortion. It is, it is profoundly possible and, and likely probable that there are many of you here that have had an abortion or that have paid for an abortion. And what Satan will do is, is, he'll, shoot, is he'll shoot these fiery darts. See, because the thing is, is that, yeah, we can't have the attitude, and we as a nation are in, are in profound trouble. We, gotta, we, gotta, we need some serious repentance here. Because we as a nation are going to stand before the Lord for what we have allowed 
And, and it is, it's, it, it, it's horrific. Now, having said that, the enemy has taken captive many to do, to do his will. And, and there are those that have, have been lied to and have done this and have since come to understand the, the, the great evil that they have done. And they are profoundly remorseful. May well apply to you. Profoundly remorseful. You regret this decision that you have made. And, and, and here's the thing. That, that, you know, for this one precious sister, she made a horrible decision. She was lied to. And she has regretted it for her entire life now. It's something that just moves her to tears. It's, it's anguish. It's guilt. It's shame. It's, it's regret. And, and, and she did this before she knew the Lord. And so, you know, again, having the opportunity to remind her, look, do not allow this fiery dart to penetrate your life. Let's put this fire out right now. That's a decision that you made. Yes, it was a sinful decision. But you know what? God has forgiven you of that. He died on the cross for your sin in your place, and that's one of the sins that he died for. In God's economy, that child, that child is with him. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Bible says that in his presence is fullness of joy. And so, so that it, you can be set free from that horrible decision. Confess it. Yes, that was a sinful choice. Lord, have mercy on me. I regret that I ever did that. And hear from the Lord him say, daughter, you're forgiven. I've forgiven you. I died for that sin. I've, I've, I've cleansed you of that. And, and just as Romans 8.28 says, that in all things God works together for the good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose, you, God will even, he'll redeem that in the sense that this child, taken before it had an opportunity to experience any life here on earth, is experiencing life in heaven in the presence of the Lord in fullness of joy. And so again, it's a, it's a, it's a fiery dart. And it's a real life example of where Satan will shoot this. And his whole idea is, I want to train wreck you. I want to get you to the place where you give up. I want to get you to the place to where you just throw it in and say, forget it. I'm guilty and I, I can't do any better and I give up. No, you got you to take up that shield of faith. He says in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we've got two issues here. We've got the helmet of salvation. We've got the sword of the spirit. Now the helmet, everybody gets what a helmet is, right? You put a helmet on and it, and it, it protects your head and the, the, you know, Roman soldiers had a helmet, a leather cap studded with metal for extra strength and um, you know, you're foolish to go into battle without your helmet, right? And, and there, are, there are some, they, they teach us, they go, okay, a helmet is salvation, that means <clears throat> I've got to protect my mind, I've got to protect the thoughts that, that come in. Yeah, okay. But let me, let me give you a little bit more accurate what this is talking about, the idea that this helmet of salvation is talking about. In, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, it speaks of the helmet of salvation in connection to our hope of salvation. Here's what it says. I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. See, here's what David Guzik says. He says that the helmet of salvation... <clears throat> excuse me, protects us against discouragement. That's the key. Discouragement against the desire to give up. Giving us hope, not only in knowing that we are saved, but that we will be saved. Now, you, I'll illustrate it. You know Peter, and you know his denying of the Lord. And you know, probably, what happened in, in John 21. There in John 21, Peter's denied the Lord, the Lord's resurrected, 
that he has appeared to his disciples. He told them to, you know, to go and wait for him and so on. And, 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 and this has all happened. But Peter's still in this place of profound discouragement. I blew it. And so what's he say to his disciples or his, his fellow disciples? He says, I'm going fishing. And the way that it's written in the original language, it kind of suggests that Peter said, I'm going back to fishing. In other words, look, this whole discipleship thing, I tried it and I failed it. I'm a loser. So I'm going back to fishing because that's all I know what to do. And Jesus, thankfully, mercifully, he shows up. He talks to Peter. He restores him. That's the whole transaction. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. And the the whole transaction, the whole thing that's transpiring there is this helmet of salvation thing where Jesus is basically saying, don't be discouraged, man. Don't give up. See, one of Satan's most effective weapons against us is discouragement. And when we're properly equipped with the helmet of salvation, hey, it's, it's hard. It's hard to stay discouraged. So he says, um, take the helmet of salvation, and then he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, the idea is that the sword, or that rather the, the, the sword of the Word of God, it's an offensive weapon. Okay, it's not just all defense. Sometimes you got to go on the offense. Again, Jesus in the in uh, in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, and what was it? Every time the enemy tempted him, hey, why don't you you know take those breads, turn or take those stones, turn it into bread, and eat it. Why don't you hey, take you up on the, the high mountain, look at all the cities and all the I'll give you all the power. You can be in charge of all this stuff, you know. Or hey, why don't you get on the pinnacle of the the temple? You know what? Throw yourself off because you know the, the word of God says that that. God has given his angels, you know, charge to, or, or you have charge over the angel, whatever, they'll be able to, to, to snatch you up, they'll be able to keep you from, from striking the rocks below, and, and so why don't you do all that? And every time, Jesus refutes his lies with a sword, with the Spirit and the Word of God, the sword that he uses to, to refute uh, the lie. And, uh, and so it's so important. You've got to understand, and, this, and you have to know that the Word of God is under attack right now. There are many who are taking the position and taking the place where, where they believe that the Word of God, well, you know what? It's not inerrant. And that's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. I have a friend, former pastor, now taking the position where he says, well, I don't believe that uh, all Scripture is inerrant. And I say, so who makes that call? You, you the one now, put yourself in the place of God where you're going to decide what God said and what God didn't say. That makes you God. It's a dangerous place to be. Listen, we can't confidently wield the offensive weapon of God if we don't believe it is what he said it is. It's the word of God. And that's what, that's what Paul says here. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, he concludes in in the next three verses talking about prayer. He says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, 
being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This, this is talking about a persevering nature in prayer, that, that, that we persevere in it, that we labor in it, that it's not just some quick hastily thrown up kind of thing, but there's, there's an intention, uh, intentional laboring aspect to it. There's a, there's a, I'm considering my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm praying for you. You pray for me, we pray one for another. He says in verse 19, and for me, and I would add to you, Reliance Church, pray for me. I need your prayers. I'm making huge decisions that affect us as a church. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to study the word of God so I can effectively teach you. I need your prayers. He says, pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's writing this in jail. That in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Again, we're in a war. What's the first thing you go after in war? You go after command and control. This is why the enemy, he attacks our prayer. If you can disrupt prayer, if you can disrupt that command and control, well, it's, it's a short road to, to destruction, man. And so you have to guard your prayer life. And there's so much I could say about I mean, we could do a whole message on this one subject. Let me just, let me just cut to the chase. And I won't, I won't even ask for a visual, a visual response, although you're welcome to it. But just answer this question. Do you pray like you should? And if the answer is no, I'd ask you to take a walk with that. Because I, I don't think we do. I don't think we pray like we should. And we need to be laboring in prayer. Everything hinges on it. I'll close with this story. We'll, we'll pray and partake of communion. But um, a, dad was with his fa- or a kid was with his dad, and um, his dad was trying to teach him a lesson. And he says, hey, listen, I want you to pick up that boulder. And the kid, you know, he, he reached down and he tried to pick up the boulder. He's like, I can't do it, Dad. And his dad said, yeah, you can. You haven't, you, you haven't used all the strength available to you yet. Pick up that boulder. And the kid tried again. He said, Dad, I can't get it. He said, yes, you can. You have not used all the strength that's available to you, son. You need to pick up that boulder. And so he tried and he tried and this went back and forth and back and forth. Finally, the kid's crying. He says, Dad, I can't do it. And he says, son, I told you that you haven't used all the strength available to you. You haven't asked me yet. Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does our Father in heaven? How much will he give us the Holy Spirit to those who ask?